Hello and welcome back to Oh God What Now, broadcasting to you from free Islington North. I'm Andrew Harrison. Today, Jeremy Corbyn is barred from standing for Labour in the constituency that is home to Oh God What Now. Will he stand anyway? And do we actually need more awkward squad independent MPs? Plus, WTF to EDF and to hell with Shell. Energy companies are registering record profits while bills reach eye-watering levels. Who's going to fix it? And Rishi Sunak has just magicked up several new departments out thin air. Which offices of state would the panel like to have a go at if somebody in government was desperate enough to hand us the reins of power? So let's meet that panel. Fresh from Ogwen Live in London, it's Times Radio host and former Labour spin doctor, Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. Hello. So that was a good fun live show, wasn't it? Oh, it was so much fun. It was absolutely brilliant. Had the best, best time. And it was just such a nice, it was so nice for us to kind of gather in real life and the audience was lovely. It was just all just, oh, I was very happy afterwards. The roar of the grease paint and the smell of the crowd. So I wanted to ask you, um, this is something that we looked at a little bit at the live show. It was a surprise on the day when Nicola Sturgeon's resignation announcement came out and we had to rapidly rewrite the, the live show. Kate Forbes and Humza Yusuf have formally announced their campaigns today. What's the latest? Well, I think the the chat that everyone's really surprised about is that Angus Robertson has not put his hat in the ring. I think for many people, they saw Angus um, as somebody who would have had a really good shot of winning and somebody who's been around uh, a long time. He's you know quite well recognised a bit of a, a grey beard. He's he's held senior positions before. And somebody quite senior in the SNP was saying to me that they feel that quite, they're quite confident with the younger vote where they are struggling and where they kind of need to move the needle is with older voters. And they felt that someone like Angus Robertson could have been quite a good person to do that. So I think people are quite surprised that he hasn't thrown his hat in in the ring. So it now looks like it's really down to a runoff between Kate Forbes and Hamza Yusuf. Ash Reagan has also put her hat in the ring. She was very critical of the gender reform package that uh, Nicola Sturgeon put forward, but she's not seen as as that experienced uh, a candidate. She's also very much sticking to Nicola Sturgeon's idea of having a sort of one-line manifesto, um, which is basically a de facto referendum at the next general election. And there's quite a lot of uncertainty about that approach. So it's going to be really interesting. I mean, Kate Forbes is an interesting character. She's very highly regarded. She's seen as, you know, could be a potential real rising star, but she has got quite kind of conservative views on things like abortion and equal marriage. And of course, a lot of the SNP support is from from a younger demographic, which are very liberal in terms of social attitudes. And of course, Hamza Yusuf is somebody who's quite well known. He's held a lot of briefs, some criticism that he might be well known, but he's he's kind of well known for not doing a particularly great job in a lot of different briefs. But he's got high re- name recognition. And if he did win, it would be quite extraordinary because you would have, um, you know, a, a person of South Asian, um, you know, heritage as first minister as Prime Minister and as Sarwa's leader of the opposition in Scotland and, of course, Sadiq Khan. So that would be quite a big kind of breakthrough moment for, for Scottish politics. Well, uh, yeah, that one I'm sure we'll be coming back to every five minutes for the next few weeks. Also with us, it's iPaper columnist and reporter Hannah Fern. Hi, Hannah. Hi there. 
Hannah, in the past few weeks, uh, the paper's been full of the very sad story of Nicola Bully, who went missing near a river in Lancashire. Uh, now it seems her body has been found. Um, Lancashire police have come in for a huge amount of criticism during the, the search for talking about her issues of alcohol and the menopause. How does a police force decide that releasing that kind of information uh, is a good idea? So in this particular case, it seems to have been that the decision was taken because the family were very aware that local people who knew her and were aware of these personal issues that you referred to uh, were thinking about leaking stories to the press, to the Red Top newspapers, and they wanted to get out there and, and put a stop to that. And you can understand the family wanting to feel that they have some control over that information. But the way it was handled by the police was quite surprising. Um, and the balance in terms of how they shared that information, they seem to have got completely wrong. And they didn't think through, it seems to me, from the... Uh, press um, coverage and, and you know the way they approached uh, their pr- their press meetings, the broader context in which they're operating. You know, you've got a Met that's under scrutiny for numerous instances of misogyny and sexism, um, and still recovering from the Sarah Everard case, regularly accused of behaving in what's known as missing white woman syndrome. So there's lots of attention when a white woman uh, disappears, and less so when it's a person of colour. Um, And in that environment, they decided to go ahead and release all this information, of course, with the family's consent. That seems to suggest that, well, it was easily misinterpreted to suggest that her vulnerability made her, you know, less of a a person of interest in terms of finding her or that they were taking these kind of issues around her potential mental health and the menopause and so on uh, into account in, in, in their investigation without thinking about other alternatives it played into this kind of narrative at the moment about how women going through the menopause are you know potentially unstable which i know a lot of women in the midlife are very concerned about uh, it seems such a miscalculation of how to handle police press uh, you know notifications for the public i can't understand what went wrong and the balance which is always a delicate balance they got wrong here Finishing our lineup is a writer and comedian who once told the Apollo that he sounds like he's been colonised by his own voice. I hear Shah. Hello, I hear. Hello. Uh, so in Apocalypse News, uh, Microsoft has had to put limits on its Bing chatbot uh, after the chatbot said it wanted to steal nuclear access codes and told one reporter that it loved him. So is this the Terminator slash her with Scarlett Johansson crossover that we were all fearing or hoping would happen. Yeah, this is an absolutely extraordinary story. Um, if you drop right, yes, the nuclear codes telling the reporter that it loved him. He said, no, I'm happily married. He said, no, you're not happily married. You're not in love because you're not with me. That's the only way that you could be uh, in love. It's, uh, it's, it's really, really uh, creepy um, in many ways. And, and it was... In many ways, I think that we all in our heart of hearts knew it would be Bing uh, yes. to destroy it. Like, it seems to have no other real purpose other than to destroy us one day. Poor Bing just gets ignored. Google gets all the press. DuckDuckGo gets more press. No wonder <laughs> Bing has become a little bit bitter in the corner. So I, th- I think that the interesting thing to me about this, because all of this seems to be moving so quickly, and I also think that there's a thing of because – OpenAI released ChatGPT and very quickly people were scrambling to get things out into the public domain as quickly as possible, even if they weren't ready, especially if they weren't ready (laughs) because they didn't want to lose that sort of first mover advantage. It's all happening extremely swiftly and 
as someone who's not sort of a tech expert or anything, it's like, I, I want to know how terrified to be or if I should be terrified. It could be that this goes, you know, even a decade ago, people were talking about like, oh, VR glasses are going to change everything or Google glasses are going to change everything. And suddenly that ends up being a damp squib. Or I also remember sort of in about 2010, my friend at university showing me that she could get emails on her phone and I was like, oh, that'll never catch on. Like, people don't, I, don't, I don't want to get, I don't want to be bothered by emails on my phone all the time and lo right. and behold, we're all, uh, we're all sort of glued to these things uh, now. So I think that it is going to be a really fascinating story of how much this actually does impact our lives. I know with things like schools, essays, universities, it's already having a real impact. Um, and also, I think, could prove a slightly cautionary tale in people letting this stuff out when it's not ready, just because they don't want to be the ones holding back. Also, Bing hasn't really got a lot of practice at dating yet. <laughs> so that's kind of, no wonder it's going to be a bit It's going to be hard. a bit awkward. It's in its awkward youth stage. <laughs> it is, yes. First up, Keir Starmer made his 457th decisive break from Jeremy Corbyn's time as leader by declaring that the controversial Marrow enthusiast, who lost the Labour whip in 2020, would not be allowed to stand as a Labour candidate in the next general election. Corbyn called the decision a flagrant attack on democracy, still intends to stand for selection with his local party. If he succeeds, it will be up to Labour's national executive to decide his fate. And if it's still a no... It's widely expected that Corbyn will stand as an independent anyway, and he could well win. So, Aisha, could that actually be, not quite a nightmare scenario, but actually a bit of a win-win? Starmer gets to demonstrate total distance from Corbynism. He's out of the party, but if you're on the left, you've got somebody to rally around. I'm not sure if it's a a win-win as such. I mean, I think it is important for Keir Starmer to distance himself from Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, let's not forget Jeremy Corbyn was an absolute drag anchor. I, I don't think for me that there's any question of Keir Starmer trying to sort of, you know, make amends with, with Jeremy Corbyn or, or bringing Jeremy Corbyn back into the party. Keir Starmer is doing really well at the moment, although the general election is a good 18 months away. The one thing that would absolutely imperil Keir Starmer's chances of being prime minister would be to bring Jeremy Corbyn back in any way. I was looking at some really interesting um, research from some focus groups in sort of Tory heartlands where Labour does need to switch some Conservative voters to to, to voting Labour. And we looked at a a group of uh, Conservative voters who were historically Conservative voters, fed up with the Tory party, particularly after the mini-budget and and Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. They were open to voting for uh, another party, the but you know they hadn't made a final decision, and what was really interesting is when you looked, dug into that, they were basically saying they thought Keir Starmer was much better than than Jeremy Corbyn, but to them, the fact that Jeremy Corbyn and others had you know been in charge of the Labour Party for, for quite a long time, they were still really really nervous about that. That was a really big um, factor that put them off the Labour Party. And when you ask people, right, who are the big names in the Labour Party that that you think? are in charge of the Labour Party. Of course, they said Keir Starmer. The other names that came up were Diane Abbott, John McDonnell. Like people still 
think that there is a part of Corbynism in the the, the the upper levels of the of the Labour Party. So I think, you know, Keir Starmer has to be very, very cautious about that. If Jeremy Corbyn decides that he wants to take on the Labour Party and run as an independent, so be it. It's quite difficult for independents historically, the data shows it's quite difficult for independents to win uh, in areas where they have had, you know, a certain party um, you know, dominating that area. If people want to kind of rally behind Jeremy Corbyn and and you know make Islington North the the battleground for that, then then so be it. As we're seeing from the collapse of the you know Tory Party, we're seeing a bit of that with with, with the SNP at the moment. We certainly saw that with Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. It's really dangerous for a party to hinge around one huge figure. It's really bad for one party to sort of become a cult around one person. No individual should be bigger than 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 the party itself. And I, I really hope that Jeremy Corbyn and his fans sort of see that, but I suspect they won't. And if, if they want to have a fight, then Islington North will become that battleground. Hannah, uh, Diane Abbott told the news agents that Corbyn is in his heart uh, a Brexiter. And we could have told, <laughs> yeah. told that for free. <laughs> At any time over the past, you know, God knows how long. Starmer's now on a on a platform of make Brexit work, which is kind of enforced upon him by events. I don't think any of us think he sincerely believes that. But it's strange that we've basically ended up with Starmer kind of having to enact what would have been a kind of Corbynite policy on the EU. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's interesting Um that they've turned to this now, it would have been a really effective slogan mm. five years ago, three years ago. But it all feels a little bit late to me now to mm. say, let's make it work. It's It hasn't worked. Patently. It's clearly not working. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it is what people wanted five years ago that, or three years ago. They wanted a positive end to all this discussion, a positive end to the negotiation and something that they could just put them behind them. Uh, that, that that a decision had been made and, and on we go with politics as usual. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Um, something that we haven't uh, had a chance to, to talk about for a very long time. So um, the problem with adopting it now is that it just feels too late, I think. Yeah. I want to ask you about this idea that more independent MPs is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, given the way the ARG just don't fit into the Tories and have kind of seized the steering wheel and transformed the party, the Socialist Campaign Group, you know, Corbyn, Abbott, McDonald, Zara Sultana, all these guys, they're kind of semi-detached within Labour now. Many of them are on the way to that open door um, that uh, Starmer talked about. Would it be healthier if we could just accept that there will be independent MPs? There are people who want to support people who don't fit into parties. So I think that independent MPs are useful where they perform a function in that they represent an idea or a particular campaign and they're elected on the back of that because they can help to you know, move the discussion during debate in Westminster. They can lobby within Parliament to among their fellow MPs to to make change and to kind of gain um, support for whatever it is that their their particular um, hobby issue is within the parties. That's useful, but I don't think a large number of new independents would really be helpful in uh, you know creating. Well, I don't think that there's going to be loads of them. There's never going to be loads of them, but there are smattering. Perhaps I, what's what I'd like to see even more of would be more MPs representing smaller parties. So we think mm. of like Caroline Lucas was almost an independent MP because she's standing for she's the mm. only Green MP for a long you know for all that, those years, and uh, you know I'd like to see more individuals like that representing 
you know, new forces in Parliament. I think we do need more parties. I, I don't think that the, the kind of status quo is working very well for exactly the reason that you've described, that there are so many people within the two major parties now who don't really coalesce around any common ideas. Yeah, they're, they're, they're coalitions that fight. They are coalitions, themselves. yeah, absolutely. I hear, how many times does Keir Starmer need to declare the Corbyn era dead before the electorate believe him? So this is something that it's quite difficult to know, I think, because let's take a look back over the years of some of these slogans that we've been bombarded with. You know, you had long term economic plan, strong and stable government. Basically, every three years or so, the Conservative Party decides to come up with a slogan based around something that does not exist. Uh, right? And with those sorts of slogans, if you follow politics a lot, as we do, as I'm sure everyone listening to this does, you feel like, oh, I've been battered around the head with this 20 times today. Uh, you know, I'm extremely bored of it. And yet I remember seeing in the lead up to, I think, the 2017 general election where it was like everything was strong and stable, strong and stable, strong and stable. And there was just a poll, like a representative sample of the general public, like, have you heard the phrase strong and stable? And a pretty sizable minority still hadn't uh, everything because it's just like, you know, you go up on bits that you pick up on the news or whatever. So to me, and I'm sure to all of us, it feels, as you said earlier, this is the 457th time that he has declared that the Corbyn era is over everything. But as was previously said, if people still perceive yeah. the party to be run by figures from that, uh, and that's still a thought in the general public, then I guess you do keep need uh, needing to uh, say it. You know, I think that certainly internally in the party, a bunch of the membership, like they very much know that that's the case. I think that the, the downside of consistently repeating this, and I think that I've said that on this podcast before, is that I feel like every time he gets in front of people, it's telling people what he's not and who he's not, mm. uh, everything. And that's all very well and good when you – I totally understand why that's all needed to be set out. But then there does come a point, and I don't know when this point is, but maybe we've already passed it, where you've got to start saying who and what you are and what mm. you're for, uh, right, rather than just saying, well, I'm not previous guy, uh, what have you. Like this is why – I found something like when that plan for Great British Energy uh, was announced, I was like, great, this is a concrete thing that you are going for. And it is uh, sort of like someone of my political persuasion on the left would be like, yeah, this is this is the sort of thing that I want to see uh, the state doing. But because of the general vibe that you give off, people will somehow find a way to say that this is basically what the Tories would do, even though that's I don't know what people think that words mean when they say things like that. <laughs> um, right. So, yeah, I, I think that it's been said a lot. I would assume it's cut through uh, by now. And now it would be really nice to see where he goes forward. One of the open goals for Starmer is obviously that the Tory party are in such disarray. But it's also, as you've described, a real drawback because he has to spend so much of his time describing the failures of the Conservative Party instead of spending the next 18 months setting out what he's for. So it's really difficult that if you have to spend your time exposing the, you know, endless screw ups. Yeah. our current leadership, then when do you get to talk about the positive things you're all about? We're not mind readers, but I mean, do we think Corbyn would run again in Islington North and would he have a chance at winning? I think he would run again. I don't know if it's, I mean, 
I'm in sort of two minds about this. I mean, again, lots of people who are sophologists and experts keep making the point to me saying it's really difficult for an independent to win in a, a seat which has got, you know, a, a, a big kind of strong uh, party affiliation. And if you think about that constituency, it is a lot of, yes, there's a lot of people who are pro-Corbyn, but there's lots of people who are very pro-Labour government. And I think, you know, I would be sceptical about his ability to, you know, say to convince the majority of people in that constituency. And it's got its pockets of deprivation, but it's also quite an affluent, quite a sort of politically plugged in uh, constituency who, above all, would want to see, uh, you know, uh, Keir Starmer as as prime minister uh, and and to get rid of the Tories. Part of the the, the narrative of, of this is, I do agree with what he said, which is, you know, at some point, Keir Starmer has got to stop defining himself against other people, particularly sort of other men in in politics. And he's got to sort of set out his own stall. And we're beginning to see a a, a bit of that. But I just wouldn't underestimate how, like, the Tories have got few attack lines at the moment because things are going so badly. The main attack lines they're going for, we know they're going for the culture war stuff, particularly around uh, small boats and transgender rights. That's like a really big kind of set of attack lines. And the only other big attack line that they've got in 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 the locker is, you know, you essentially stood by this guy while he attempted to be prime minister. Uh, you sucked up to him in the shadow cabinet and you were by his side every step of the way. Uh, and so, you know, we're going to try and link you t- to him. I mean, that is, and, and there are many commentators and there's many parts of the, the, the right-wing press who will happily push those two narratives. And and those narratives have got some traction, particularly in areas where, I mean, now let's see what happens in Scotland. But if the needle doesn't move that much in Scotland, you can't take anything for granted there. Labour's got to pick up seats, not just from the Red Wall, but from those sort of, you know, Tory heartlands, the the sort of blue wall. So I I think as much as people go, oh, why does he keep going on about Jeremy Corbyn? That, it, it, the Tories are kind of thin. The, the locker is sort of quite bare. The cupboard is quite bare in terms of good attack lines. There are two, and Corbyn is one of them. So that's why Labour has to be really vigilant about it. Well, meanwhile, it's not just the Labour Party that's got the taste for blood at the moment. Damien Green, Conservative MP and former Deputy Prime Minister in all but name, has just been rejected as prospective candidate for the new constituency of Weald of Kent in what looks like a pro-Boris Johnson drive-by deselection. There is now hard evidence that MPs allegedly associated with bringing down Boris are being directly held to account and punished by members, said David Campbell Bannerman, the chairman of the Conservative Democratic Organisation, which makes me think about the campaign for Labour democracy from 100 years ago. Hannah, should we get the popcorn in for a feeding frenzy? Yeah, probably. I mean, with Damien Green specifically, I'm not going to cry great tears over a man who was allegedly uh, sexually harassed female journalists in um, Westminster. Uh, so, I mean, you know, people like him gone, never mind. But I think that in terms of the issue, uh, yeah, I, it, I, but what's what's new here? I mean, every time you come to the end of a government, you end up with the party falling over itself mm. to um, erase its own past fight and find the, uh, I guess, the scapegoats for the, the, the cause of the downfall and so on. And this is just more of that going on, really. Um, I think it's not healthy, but it is how parties regenerate. 
you know, let let these people self-immolate, really, and uh, uh, let's see what comes out at the end. But it's a direct mirror image of what we talked about earlier about the party becoming so obsessed with a, a single failed leader. And at the moment, you're seeing, you know, Nadine Dorries throwing herself on the funeral pyre and uh, this, this, this sort of... Uh, vigilante groups forming themselves in the Conservative Party for punishment beatings of people who got rid of, of Boris Johnson. You might possibly accuse them of losing perspective and losing sight of the things that actually matter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, of course. And and it is a kind of personality cult around Johnson and, you know, what happened to Johnson at the moment. Um no wonder they're in complete disarray because because the membership is behaving like that. Don't forget the membership is deeply unrepresentative of the people of this country. So it means nothing in terms of, you know, the perspectives on the Conservative Party more broadly. Um, but I don't think the process that they're going through of this kind of angry deselection is in itself anything new, really. It's a, it's about the end of a party's long period of, of government and the fact they can't hold themselves together in any meaningful way anymore. It's the end of this long period of sanity. Mm. <laughs> I think that the thing, well, there are many things that uh, baffle me about, but one of the things that baffles me about this sort of great desire to do things for Boris Johnson or the like feeling that some great injustice was perpetrated against Boris Johnson. It just really reminds me of like the number of Republicans who were willing to just walk through fire for Donald Trump. Mm. Like one of the reasons being like he would never do that for you. Like he would instantly throw you under the bus and in many cases did the second it became advantageous to him to do so. So it just strikes me as like unfathomably weird that people are willing to do this sort of thing for people like Boris Johnson. It's just odd. Yeah, but it's part of the weird sort of psychopathology of politics, isn't it? In that, you know, hey, why would you want to do that job in the first place? It looks horrible. <laughs> why would you want to be in that world? It looks awful. And yet, present company accepted Aisha, obviously. Hi, <laughs> like still here. <laughs> it looks like a fucking nightmare. It looks like, you know, ruin your life and make yourself miserable. Okay, great. Line me up, sign me up. Damien Green was sacked as a minister after admitting that he'd lied about having porn on his House of Commons computer back in the innocent days of 2017 when people got sacked for things. When are MPs going to do what their constituents really want and get separate iPads for their porn? <laughs> Is that well? That, but then you get the very thorny issue of how that goes on expenses and if that goes on expenses, right? And are people getting the standard issue iPad? Are they going iPad? Like, there's no way that people would tolerate um, the iPad Pro. Surely, an iPod Mini is okay for <laughs> porn in the House of Commons. Surely, an iPorn. iPorn, yes. <laughs> Aisha, I mean, this is uh, seems to be the first drive-by execution of a sitting MP. Is there anybody else up for the boot, do you think? So I'd probably challenge your assertion this is the first. I think this has been going on for a long time. I mean, interestingly, when we were discussing earlier about um, Jeremy Corbyn momentum, they interestingly had full power over the party and they didn't kick anybody out. They never kind of organised themselves well enough to kick anybody out. But you look at what Boris Johnson with D uh, Damien Green, Dominic Cummings did. I mean, they did a whole scale expulsion of people from the Conservative Party over Brexit. So this has been going on for quite a long time. You know, the, the Conservative Party has shed so many decent one nation conservatives over the, the last sort of five, six years from Dominic Grieve to David Gawk, Anna Subri, you know, the, 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 the list goes on. So I think that actually this is a continuation of, of 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 that type of mentality. The Conservative Party 
doesn't have the squeamishness that the Labour Party does have about about getting rid of people. You know, the Labour Party, for all the sort of you know talk of internal division, when when push comes to shove, people are actually very reluctant to 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 commit an act of brutality. Not in the Conservative Party. This has been going on for quite a long time. So I think. I think we'll probably will see a bit more, but I think we'll also see some MPs, and I know there's a lot of Tory MPs have spoken to me who just think, you know what, I'm going to go before I'm pushed. I think just to echo exactly as Aisha was saying, I think that it needs to be remembered that the Conservative Party just changed very drastically when in September 2019, 21 Tory MPs lost the whip for trying to ensure that there couldn't be a no-deal Brexit. And it's like we're talking about a very different political party uh, now, which basically post that turned into sort of in both senses of the word, a mug that says you don't need to be mad to work here, but it helps. (laughs) Written in poo. (laughs) (laughs) the weather's improving and it's a good job too because we can't warm our hands around a raging lee anderson or a jonathan gullis forever increasingly we can't afford to warm our hands around anything Centrica, owner of British Gas, has just announced record profits of £3.3 billion, which could pay for the government's energy bill support scheme 10 times over. The French company EDF has also seen its profits rise to £1.2 billion. We asked listeners on Twitter for their experience. We heard all sorts of horror stories. A bill for December alone that would have equaled six months of usage before the crisis. Monthly direct debits of £500 and even £740 for a two-bedroom household. And businesses quoted increases of between 120 and 135% on their energy contracts. Meanwhile, home fuel bills are up around 200%, yet UK wholesale gas prices are at the lowest point in 18 months. Hannah, this on the face of it seems like a naked ripoff. Wholesale gas is a, a you know a low we haven't seen in five hundred days or more. It's been a mild winter, and yet bills are more than doubling. Is is it more complex than that? Well, it is in that the profits that energy companies are making are made primarily actually from their work extracting, drilling, mm. and and trading rather than commercial sale. So. And there's also a time lag between the purchase um, of, you know, the, the energy mm-hmm. that's then sold to us and the and the price at which it's uh, sold on at. So you, the, the stuff that we're buying now was purchased at a more expensive price than the one that's currently on the wholesale market. So it is more complicated, but also it feels terrible. You know, this... In, in light of these vast profits, uh, it, it feels incredibly bad vibes. And I think if I was um, a senior shareholder in one of these organisations, of course I would never be, which is uh, probably why I don't have people like me on there, uh, it, you know, is th- they should be thinking about how this looks and thinking about whether there's a case for, you know, changing the business model in the light of the crisis, passing it on at the current purchase price instead of the delayed purchase price and, and so on. Um, it's, it's really awful to be seen to be taking such large sums of strapped households um, and, and pocketing, uh, trousering and, you know, good journalistic phrase, all this cash at the same time. It, yeah, how can you justify it? I mean, the government support scheme has been highly contested. Uh, it's applied to your bill automatically if you qualify. It won't be a case of people missing out because they weren't aware. But if you were on a prepay, 
but you have to take action in order to get yes, that money. Yes, it's not and not just prepay. There's there's a bunch of people who've been missing out mm. on this. So there's um, renters who pay their energy bills through their landlord. There's a really complex scheme you have to go through to kind of qualify for any kind of personal discount for that if you pay through your landlord. Um, people who are on heat networks. So these are these large scale um, heat distribution pumps that go through entire buildings. So if you live in maybe a massive high-rise block, often council-owned, yeah. the government was incredibly late to confirm any kind of support package for people on, on heat networks and, and for the you know major landlords, often councils, who were running those buildings. Um, so huge disarray in that. And they left people in limbo. So yeah, there's a, there's a large proportion of people who haven't benefited from that automatic transfer can the scheme be a candidate success at all i mean we're seeing these stories of people with pun- almost punitive energy bills it, it's a success is a is a strange word i mean it has obviously offset the very worst for some people mm. um, but it's only offset i mean we're still seeing bills coming in at, like you've described from our listeners sharing their experiences through you know staggering bills up to 750 pounds for you know one month mm. even with 400 taken you know that's after the 400 has been taken off yeah so i can't see how you can describe it as a success when it it leaves so many people financially exposed sunak has increased taxes on energy companies but an actual properly significant windfall tax seems very very unlikely is he prioritizing the low tax message over the good of the country yes um but what do you expect from a tory PM. If you want windfall taxes, you've got to vote Labour. That's that's not something we're ever going to see from him. And it's, it is it is what he, you would expect him to do. Um, I disagree, but I don't think he's very likely to change his, his opinion on that anytime soon. Uh, here, as uh, Hannah was just saying, companies get rich off poor people freezing is pretty much the most Dickensian story you could wish for at the moment. Has the Labour Party properly framed it to the advantage of the Labour Party, do you think? Well, I mean, I, I know that this isn't what you think and you're just sort of framing a question, but the truth matter is in terms of like labor gaining, like this this fundamentally shouldn't be a political advantage thing, right? Like it, it, it doesn't matter. Are you labor Tory? Well, my party would argue that like only by us getting in is this going to get fixed. Uh, yeah, for sure. But they're not in right now. Yeah. Uh, and so and and the need feels far more immediate than uh, can be achieved by, you know, a general election in the summer of next year or what have you, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think that yeah, it, it feels fairly universal that we, we all saw those sort of videos of people like breaking into fit meters and everything. It's fucking hideous. Like it's it's just properly, properly ghoulish. And as Hannah was saying, like. Do they not know how this looks? Do they not care how this looks? Uh, I was reminded of a bit of stand-up from the late American comedian uh, Patrice O'Neill who talked about, like, bread being $4. And uh, it was just like – and I just wish that the company just looked me in the eye and said, what are you really going to do, right? What are you really – like, it's $4 because we felt like it being $4, okay? Like, what are you going to do? Send your kid to school with peanut butter, jelly, no bread? Like, no, it's not going to happen. And everything – and his old life was like, fuck me, but tell me that you're fucking me while you're – doing it right and i don't think that that would be like that would actually feel nicer uh, in this particular context but it's it's what it made me think of you know it, it feels like there is a sort of very naked grab by these companies for even more when they're already getting as much as they are and it feels uh 
wrong. It feels unfair. It feels distasteful. It feels like all sorts of things. Um, and something, as Hannah again was saying, unfortunately, it feels like the chances that Rishi Sunak is going to go on the television tomorrow night and say, and P.S. there's going to be a windfall tax on all of these um, unexpected profits. Unfortunately, that feels unlikely because that's the sort of thing that the Labour Party tends to do uh, when in government. But I wish that it didn't feel that way. And I wish that even the Conservatives could see that at a time like this, in circumstances like this, it shouldn't be about party. It should be about what's doing mm. what feels just. It's bit bigger than ideology mm. now. It's about immediate need, as you said. Mm. Do you think, I mean, well, wholesale bills are going to fall or have already fallen and domestic bills will fall as we get into the summer, not just because we're heading into the summer, but because, as Anna described, you know, the market lags behind the whole the wholesale price, the domestic market. But do you think that this this kind of crisis has reframed our ideas of, you know, what kind of an energy environment we're in? I mean, are we now in a, are we now in a place where everybody knows energy is really, really, really expensive and will be that way for a long time? Well, this is the thing. We're talking about bills falling in the summer, and uh, there are some analysts saying that a typical bill will be £2,100 in July for a typical household for a year. Bear in mind that this is still double what it was uh, before. So it's not like we're saying, and we're back to the back to the days uh, before Putin's invasion of Ukraine uh, or anything like that. I think it has, and I think that the wider situation with what's been happening in Ukraine has made people rethink their relationship to energy, both on an individual level, but also on a national political level. I found it interesting, for example, that DESNES, one of these uh, new departments, is the Department for Net Zero and Energy Security. Um, and I find that politically interesting because it allows the right to sort of frame it on their terms. It's like, no, we're not, um, you know, we don't want to be seen as the loony left giving subsidies to windmills, but this is energy security and we're going to do it in energy security. I'm like, fine, whatever whatever way you want to frame it that gets it, like as long as that gets it done, uh, because we need this um, to be done. I think that it's going to be interesting to see, though, how quickly if bills do lower um, this sort of, changing relationship to energy for households uh, hangs along. Um, I was reminded of a very interesting study that came out of the University of Cambridge earlier this year. Researchers analysed gas consumption patterns of more than 55,000 dwellings over 12 years, 2005 to 2017, and found that cavity wall insulation led to an average 7% drop in gas use during the first year, shrinking to 2.7 in the second, and by the fourth year, any energy savings were negligible. And basically what this study showed was that the you know you insulate your home but that doesn't actually end up that you end up using a hell of a lot less gas you just decide that you'd like it to be a couple of degrees mm. warmer mm. um and so you know th this happens in my own like we rent in a very like drafty old victorian house uh everything and we have the heat on very low and wear loads of jumpers because we are we're literally paying to heat the street even when all the doors are closed. Yeah. So why would you bother? And if we lived in a well-insulated home, then we just wouldn't do that and we'd probably end up using more gas. So, it, yeah, it it will be interesting to see how much people's individual relationship to energy use changes when this passes or if they use this uh, sort of as the spur to get insulation for their houses and what have you, because it does seem that the research shows that you revert to your original behaviour pretty quickly. Aisha, the government support scheme changes in March to a much uh, lower level of support 
for business in particular, it's been described as a cliff edge. Business is already suffering really high energy bills. will have their support cut much further. Is this properly on anyone's radar? I think it is. And, um, you know, I've certainly been doing lots of um, events with people from the business community. And we talk a lot about the cost of living crisis. There's a massive cost of doing business crisis because of of soaring energy costs. And it's not just big business, it's really small businesses as well. You think about your kind of corner shop that has, you know, lots of sort of chiller cabinets and you think about the amount of, you know, energy that they're having to spend now. So I think, you know, all businesses at, at every level are really suffering about this. But the government has basically decided that it's everybody, you know, everyone's on their own, you know, after this period in time. But I think one of the things that is interesting when you look at the bigger politics is that there's lots of issues where people, you know, are rightly saying, look, what is the big difference between the Labour Party and the Tory Party at the moment? You could say that about um, the economy to a certain degree. You could say that about immigration to a certain degree. Climate change and energy is something where the Labour Party is setting out a very, very different stall at the moment. What's really interesting is that Rachel Reeves setting out this sort of big plan for this big new green economy, which is sort of £28 billion, I think, around. I mean, let's see if that ever, you know, comes to fruition in terms of, you know, how that's actually going to be paid for if that actually happens. But it is interesting that Labour is put that Labour sort of sees this as an important dividing line with the Conservatives. The Conservatives are very much still planning to to, to crack on with fossil fuels and, and do a kind of gently, gently approach. The Labour Party is wanting to be much more sort of radical on the green agenda. So I think they are looking to use this as a, you know, a, a wedge issue, particularly with, with younger people. Finally, Rishi Sunak's recent reshuffle created four brand new departments in government so that there are even more desks for Jacob Rees-Mogg to put his little sorry we missed you (laughs) notes on. And still nobody knows what DESNES stands for. I I just told everyone. I just told everyone. Department for Energy Security, (laughs) net zero. Um, This whole reshuffle also showed how shallow the Tory talent pool is. There were no sackings or demotions, just some musical chairs. And Sunak appointing the Conservatives' sixth housing minister in 12 months. So... If the ball came loose at the back of the scrum, as somebody once said, which departments would we like to have a go at? Because we couldn't do worse than the people in charge right now. Aisha, you were a spad. What what actually happens when the department that you work in is abolished overnight? You just well, go I in did, and like there's no lights on. I didn't. I, that never sort of happened um, to me. I mean, we we basically abolished ourselves as the Labour Party. When <laughs> we lost power, which was like pretty pretty devastating. Um, I mean, these changes. I mean, a lot of it is 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 admin. I mean, the one thing about the legacy of this government will be their commitment to mindless bureaucracy, red tape, and admin. Whether it's Brexit, whether it's like creating new departments, rather than actually getting on and doing things, they do seem to love a lot of admin. It's not like hugely dramatic, and and to be fair, some of it kind of makes sense. I mean, they've actually ended up making the business department back as the old DTI, the Department of Trade and Industry, and that that's where I worked when I was a civil servant for for quite a long time. There are some things which are kind of reasonably sensible. Taking digital out of DCMS, for example, 
and putting it into the business department is not like the maddest thing ever. You know, having a dedicated, you know, we've just been talking about energy being incredibly important, you know, having a sort of dedicated uh, department, which has, you know, got a bigger remit on, on energy and climate change is not a bad thing. But these are the kind of things you do when you have a lot of road ahead of you. You know, these are the kind of big departmental changes um, that makes sense, for example, if you're if you're coming in. I mean, most people are feeling like the Conservative Party is running out of road right now. So to do all of this feels a big distraction, feels really indulgent. And it also kind of feels like read the room, guys. Like this is a bit like kind of redecorating. I mean, Rishi Sunak and, uh, and Jeremy Hunt are probably getting Lulu Little back in to, to redo the, the flats at Downing Street. I mean, that's the kind of vibe that it's, it's giving off. But I mean, what most stakeholders, I mean, a lot of the stakeholders I speak to are not like, some of the changes make some kind of sense, but I think it's just that frustration that it is this sort of, you know, revolving doors of of ministers. You know, I've worked both as a civil servant, as a special advisor. I've also been outside government, particularly with the music industry and, and, and art stuff, where it does feel like if you're constantly having a new minister every five minutes, it's incredibly frustrating for everybody having to get the new minister up to speed. It's really frustrating for the civil service as well. Just the sheer amount of time it takes as well. These yeah. kind of, you know, re- redistributions of uh, um, work and workload. It just, just 18 months it'll take for the civil service to settle down into any kind of real effort. And by then, we're at the general Who knows what will be in 18 months? Well, I will say, like, it, it does seem like, and Aisha did say this, that like some of these changes do, like they just make sense. And then like rationalizations of what was going on. It is really weird that for an extended period of time, Nadine Dorries was minister for both the Premier League and basically all cybercrime. These are very, very <laughs> vastly different things. And like, yeah, DCMS uh, didn't function in the same way uh, that it did when it began when digital was a comparatively smaller part of both people's lives and the economy. Um, similarly with Bayes, it does sort of make sense uh, this way. And I just wanted to say, because I, I screenshotted this when I read it um, in Politico Playbook email, uh, when this uh, creation of the new departments happened, uh, it said, one Westminster wag told Playbook after things had wrapped up last night, classic Sunak move, technocratic with no obvious political benefit. A former Tory spad said less diplomatically, I think this might be the most boring government in living memory. And it's like, all <laughs> those things are good. <laughs> Right, yeah. get like oh, the, oh, it's got no obvious political benefit, and it's not sexy and showy. It's just oh, I think that he just did it because he thinks it's right and good. Yeah, like, what a madman! <laughs> that's that's your problem. That's it, like that seems really illustrative of how, to have to have a problem with yeah. that sort of thing seems illustrative of how poisoned uh, much of the Westminster like, system is. Yeah, needs more crimes and disgraces. Please, <laughs> bring them in right now. Also, I love that he just said, oh, it was just didn't make sense for, that Nadine um, Doris had, um, you know, control of digital. It didn't make sense that Nadine Doris had control of anything. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> fair, fair. Uh, so, all right, which departments would we like to have a crack at then? No one's going to be surprised to hear me say... Housing. Housing. Go on then. Uh, well, for a start, I'd get rid of it from 
leveling up. I've never understood why they're together. Leveling up is a very specific focus around ensuring equality of opportunity in certain parts of the country. Mm. We have a national housing crisis. It's not localized to those areas that also need a lot of concentration around leveling up. It's not a north-south thing. It's always been a kind of Cinderella subject, a second-hand subject. They've gone through Six housing ministers in a year, like you said, but it's something like 13 in 14 years or maybe 14 in 13 years. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Uh, And given the scale of the problem, it needs one person to have sole focus over it. Ideally, someone ambitious who wants to actually get something Done. Usually it's uh, a ministry for somebody who wants to be in another ministry as soon as possible. I mean, that's the problem. This should be seen as a defining brief at the moment. Uh, No one wants to take hold of it. If you're going to wrap it up with anything, you could potentially put it with a DWP because of the link between, you know, social housing, developing social housing and benefits. Um, But it should not be with levelling up. No. That frustrates me. Is, is the reason that housing and levelling up are together at the moment functionally because it's just the department for Michael Gove and those are the things that he wants That's to do? That's a fair, fair analysis. Yeah. yeah. Are you sure? What one do you like to have a crack at? I mean, obviously, if I was parachuted in to be Secretary of State, it would be DCMS without a sh- without, in a heartbeat. <laughs> but in terms of a, of a sensible uh, machinery of government change, I think that immigration is something which is such a big issue now it should actually be put into one standalone department which looked at both uh, labor shortages and um, you know skills and and things like that and then the other side of of immigration as well i think because i don't think anyone has got a proper kind of sensible grip over over this and is looking at it holistically and compassionately and from a common sense point of view as well so i think that would be quite a sensible machinery of government change in my book yeah, I noticed it's referred to as uh, as MOG everywhere, machinery of government, which has terrible kind of connotations, doesn't it? You don't want to be thinking about MOG when you're trying to reorganise your government. He's already no. done it once. Definitely. You don't want to think about um, a very tall man suddenly sort of looming in on you. No. I hear, how about you? So part of me wants to say transport because fundamentally I like trains uh, because I'm that sort of guy. Uh, But I think that maybe being too close to the trains uh, might in some way ruin my relationship with them and that keeping us at a distance will be... Would there be lots of photo ops? My dad works in the railway industry and he's still a total train nerd. Okay, this is fantastic to know. Um, You would would do photo ops that made Liz Truss look like a kind of agoraphobic um, ballistic... Yeah, yeah, I do. um, Like her in the tank, but it'd be me on on top of the Flying Scotsman. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I think that, you know, you, you mentioned Liz Truss, and I fear that my, my actual answer might make me sound a bit too much like her. Um, but I think that one of the things that does strike me, and I think that she, she diagnosed perfectly correctly because lots of people can see it, is that there does seem to be a startling lack of ambition uh, for ways that growth can be achieved uh, in this country. And like, we've sort of like, just given up on the idea that we're properly going to be able to deliver like really large scale things. uh, And so I think that that would be a thing to focus on. I think somehow going to the Treasury and shaking them out of this notion that 
oh well um you know oh but it's it's gonna it's gonna cost us a fiver today uh so let's just not do it because then we'd have to spend a fiver today it's like you know it'll make you a billion quid in like 10 years if we just go for it you're sounding, uh, and maybe it's going to be difficult but let's come on you're sounding suddenly rather lettucey there uh, here <laughs> Have you been remote controlled from elsewhere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but pro- probably the way that I would go about doing it wouldn't be to immediately set fire to all pensions. <laughs> I think that that was a weird way of going about it. It was a really weird way. It was a bad, it was a bad idea. It's, but listen, we've all got our different styles and that was hers. Yes, yes, yes. Well, uh, for me, I mean, the likelihood that I would be offered any of these things, I mean, would I think it would be, it would be clear evidence that Britain was over. <laughs> not, not the job in government in any way whatsoever it would be Andrew I just refer you back to two words Nadine Doris <laughs> absolutely yeah and you would expect me to say DCMS because I'm a I'm a wet arts person with a music business background and telly and all the rest of it but I'm not going to say that I'm going to say defence blimey I was not defense. expecting that my qualifications for this have I read a lot of war comics and a lot of Anthony Beaver <laughs> but my other qualification is I know what I don't know and I would be the defence secretary who shut the fuck up and listened to the requirements of the military-industrial complex. I thought you were just going to be like, listen, my, my qualifications are I'm a hard bastard. No, <laughs> like, no, 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 no. I thought, but, you know, try to be relatively serious about it. We've seen one or not, – not recently, actually. We seem to have had some fairly good defence ministers recently, but we've often seen very Walter Mitty-ish defence uh, ministers who really, really want to be photographed in a tank and really want to be photographed under the nacelles of a fighter bomber. I don't want to do any of these things. I just want – I would – I would – and if you're listening, military-industrial establishment, I'm your guy. I would be simply looking to convey – because I think I think we live, we live in times when um, – we kind of have to trust that our armed forces are serious people. Andrew, I love the pitch. Listen, Ben Wallace might be heading off to chair NATO, so I mean, there might be an opening for I've you. Got a, I've got a bit of a, I've got a, uh, an admiration for Ben Wallace. So I, th- I think uh, you know, personally, I'm completely four F. Right, I've never yomped anywhere. Wouldn't know the right end of a rifle from the wrong end of a rifle, but I would know how to listen to these guys. I would know how to listen to our boys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm basically Mark Francois. I'd be sitting there in some bad khaki saying, tell me what you want, chaps. Please, God, may this never happen. Love love this as a pitch. Make me the defence secretary. I'm a total walkover. (laughs) That's basically it, yes. Yes, oh, my phone's lighting up all of a sudden with some inquiries from people. So we've come to the end of the show, which means it's time for Escape Routes. What are the films, books, poems, pancake recipes that our panellists are getting stuck into this week to take their mind off politics? Aisha. So I've actually been doing lots of trips to the theatre, which I have been completely loving. And this week I've been to see two things. I went to see uh, Cabaret at the Kit Kat Club, which is absolutely Stunning, absolutely stunning. And I also went to see a new production at the National Theatre called Standing at the Sky's Edge, which is absolutely 
wonderful. It sort of tells the story of a council estate in Sheffield and it follows one flat and the three different families that live in that flat over many, many decades. So it sort of spans, you know, housing policy, Hannah. So you would like oh, this, it. Actually, it. I want to go and see this. this it's so great. good. It spans right. Any trains? Any trains, trains in it? <laughs> oh, yeah, there's, 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 a mention of the train, there's a mention of the train station. It's just absolutely brilliant. It's one of those things where I went to see it and I thought... I was quite hungover because I'd just been to the Brits, a massive name drop there, but I was massively hungover. And I was at the theatre, I was thinking, God, is this going to be really worthy? Because it's about politics and housing and social regeneration and identity and belonging. And it was absolutely wonderful. The music was brilliant. It was so clever how it weaved all these themes together. And honestly, there was not a dry eye in the house at the end. At one point, you could literally hear the whole audience sobbing together. But it was very hopeful as well. Go and see it. It's amazing. And it's based on the album by Richard Hawley, isn't it? Yes. Great, fantastic album by Richard Hawley, yeah. formerly of The Long Pigs and Pulp and all kinds yeah. of things like that. And the music is absolutely amazing. Like, it's just so uplifting. And the, all the the actors are hugely talented and they've, they've got real range because they're brilliant actors and they, the voices are just, like, amazing. And they've got this incredible live band as well, so... Just go and see it. It's just such a fantastic You really production. sold that. Let's yeah. go. Let's go. Team Night Out. Uh, here, how about you? Uh, I mean, my ongoing love at the moment is greatest television show uh, on television, uh, The Apprentice. Um, because, <laughs> oh listen, God. I'm basically, listen, what you have to understand about me and my, like, cultural tastes is that, you know that, um, like, meme from Fifty Shades of Grey where he's like, my desires are unconventional. And I'm like, my desires are com- completely <laughs> conventional. <laughs> but I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I'm BBC One. Or, yeah, that's, that's the sort of thing that I like. Um, so there's that. But then what I'm excited about uh, going to see, which I think we'll go to uh, over the weekend, is a film that a friend uh, recommended me called um, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, which is a sort of like, it's about a little one-inch tall shell who lives with his grandma, and it's like done in a mockumentary style where a filmmaker sort of ends up living with this shell. Uh, And listen, I can't really talk about it much because I've intentionally decided not to learn much about it beyond the fact that it's got a 98% thing on Rotten Tomatoes and my mate was just like, I saw this film about a shell and it's like it was made for me. It's it's just lovely and heartwarming and uplifting and whatnot. Huh? I'm going to watch the film about the shell uh, and re- then I'm going to watch The Apprentice. <laughs> that reminded me of the best SpongeBob episode title uh, of all time, which was Rockabye by Valve. So this could be your thing. <laughs> Hannah, how about you? Well, uh, in my usual vein of being late to everything, I am just coming to the end of um, The White Lotus season two. Which is incredible. It is incredible. Uh, I'm I'm sure you've all seen it, listeners. I'm sorry if I'm telling you things you already know, but um, I just can't believe how wonderful it is to see such a novelistic uh, TV programme, essentially. It's character-driven. It's just one of the best things I've seen in ages. So, um, yeah, I really highly recommend it if you haven't got around to it. If, like me, you're about six months late to absolutely everything. Your favourite character will probably be Jennifer Coolidge. Who's your second favourite character? Oh, well, my second favourite character is, I can't remember her name now, the journalist from Series 1. Can anyone remember back to Series 1 of The White Lotus? Because I've just binged with... Because um, her crisis, her clickbait crisis, is something that speaks so deeply to my heart and struggling to survive (laughs) in this industry that, uh, yeah, I had had huge... um, time for her relatable yeah sadly Mm. so 
Well, my escape route is some pop music. It is the new album by my long-term favourite Orbital, electronic music Orbital, uh, and the album's called Optical Delusion. These the, uh, Paul from the band did the theme tune for our sister sibling podcast, Doomsday Watch. So if you like those the grand, sweeping, vaguely terrifying sound of the Doomsday Watch theme, you will love this album, uh, which includes, amongst other things, a contemporary modern-day rearrangement of uh, the old plague song Ringa Ringa Roses which of course was all about the Black Death uh, re-related to Covid and that's track one, that really gets the party started. (laughs) It's got Sleaford mods on it, it's got astonishing electronic uh, vistas and it's really really good and it's called Optical Delusion and it's out this week. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God What Now? We're going to be back on Friday or if you like the podcast a little earlier, backers on Patreon and you'll get it on Thursday. There is a new thing coming soon, only for Patreon backers. We're going to start doing a monthly Zoom with one of our panellists where you can ask them anything you like. We're calling it Podcaster's Question Time. And the first one is with Alex Andreo. It's on Thursday the 2nd of March at 7 o'clock. Just search Patreon, oh God, what now? Or follow the link in the show notes so you can sign up and join us for that special evening of you asking whatever you want of Alex. Now here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, along with a thank you to some of those splendid Patreon people. Many thanks from me to Alex, Nick Lockington, Linda and Stephen Chone. Hello, and a massive shout for your generosity to Anne Broad, Joanna, Ut Schwarting, and Olivia Kelly. Greetings and thanks for your support from me to Chris Stepanek, Allegra King, Reese Thomas, and Chris Walker. And finally, hello and many thanks from me to Andrew Jacobs, Jane Ballantyne, EJP, and Jim Walker. Thanks for listening. We'll see you at the end of the week for another episode. Oh God, What Now was presented by Andrew Harrison with Aisha Hazarika, Hannah Fern and Ahir Shah. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Kasia Tomashevich, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Oh God, What Now?